Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We are going to follow our usual structure today. We uh, have our news roundup to kick things off. We're going to have uh, a quick conversation about these three topics. First off, a very interesting piece by Stephen Levy on the back channel um, medium publication about Apple's uh, artificial intelligence efforts. Uh, we will talk secondly about music deals and specifically three stories from this week. Uh, the first about Spotify trying to get longer deals uh, than it currently has with major labels. Secondly, Amazon trying to get deals just for the Echo device. And then thirdly, Pandora trying to uh, finalize deals to do a standard sort of music subscription service. So we'll wrap those three up together. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about the shutdown uh, of the Vespa note-taking app for iOS that was announced this week. Uh, and just kind of use that as a jumping off point for a brief discussion about the state of the app store and the app economy more generally. Uh, Our middle segment will be our question of the week. And uh, the question this week uh, builds on uh, a long post that I did about uh, Tim Cook's five years as the CEO. Uh, Today, Wednesday is the day we're recording this, uh, is the five-year anniversary of Tim Cook taking over at Apple as permanent CEO. And so we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on that um, as a sort of companion to that blog post, which we'll link to from the show notes. Uh, So we'll talk about how we should view Tim Cook's first five years as CEO. That'll be the question. And then our third segment will be uh, a discussion of the announcements from Intel's developer forum that recently happened in San Francisco. Uh, We debated talking about this last week and in the end decided to push it off a week. And so we're having that conversation now. We're going to talk about some of the major announcements that were made there and just talk about Intel's business in general and, and kind of trends around all of that. So that'll be our third segment. And then we'll wrap up with our weekly pick where Aaron will have a recommendation. Uh, we realized I did the question of the week last week and Aaron did the weekly pick last week. And normally we alternate, uh, but Aaron's having a, a very busy time as he gets ready to go back to, to teaching again this week. And so uh, we've decided to switch things up a bit. And uh, so probably we'll have Aaron do something next week or we'll switch it up entirely and do some kind of preview of the Apple event that we're all expecting for the week after. At any rate, let's kick things off with the news roundup. So first off was this back channel uh, piece by Stephen Levy on Apple's AI efforts. Uh, and really, this piece is off the back of a day that Stephen Levy spent at the Apple headquarters in Cupertino uh, talking to uh, Craig Federighi and Eddie Q and others um, from the AI team about how Apple approaches artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, and all that. Um, there's no way we can summarize everything in the piece, but really this is Apple's first sort of really public attempt to push back on this narrative that it's somehow behind on AI, doesn't get AI, um, and, and really kind of pull back the curtain a little bit on some of this stuff and really emphasize how much AI and machine learning and so on are already built into almost all of uh, Apple's products and services. So Aaron, what was your take on all that? I, I thought this was a great uh, PR strategy on Apple's part. I, I don't think they could have picked a better person to write the piece for them. Stephen Levy's great and has written great things in the past. He does really well in these long-form things like this. Um, so just a compliment to him. But I think the, the thing that's interesting about the AI and, and everything, this is actually something you drew attention to on Twitter, um, was the idea that this feels on Apple because that AI doesn't seem to merge with what, the way we view Apple because uh, Apple so finely curates every aspect of an experience with their products. You know, that's like sort of their approach to doing things, uh, which some people hate. They don't like, you know, that it's the Apple's way or the highway kind of a thing. But But the idea is that AI is handing off that design those design decisions, essentially those interaction decisions to a computer, to an algorithm instead, which, yeah, I, I totally get that uh, that comparison. It's an interesting one. Yeah, for sure. No, it was an interesting one. And I, I highlighted the paragraph in which the author raised the question about this. And there was a subsequent paragraph in which the Apple team kind of said, yeah, we've had a big debate about this and, you know, whether this does change the way that we approach things. And we're used to tightly controlling everything and making very conscious decisions about how things work. And, and so handing some of that over to the algorithms and so on is is challenging. And it and sounds like it's something they've, they've thought very deeply about and are still kind of working through all the implications of that. But I thought it was it was fascinating. Uh, but good to see Apple kind of taking this on. You know, there are specific criticisms of the way Apple's approached this that are addressed in the piece. And uh, and Stephen Levy kind of comes up somewhere in the middle on most of them, kind of not giving Apple a pass on all this stuff, but also explaining how Apple sees it and at least responding to some of those criticisms. So if you haven't read it, it's well worth a read and we'll, we'll link to that uh, in the show notes. Uh, 
Um, let's talk about these music deals quickly. So just briefly to recap, Spotify uh, is preparing for an IPO. It recently raised money in a way that really accelerates its need to IPO soon. Otherwise, it starts paying a lot more interest and, other, and has other sort of negative financial implications if it delays for too long. But one of its biggest challenges is that it's been increasingly on very short-term contracts with the number of the big music labels. And I think with one of them, it's on month-to-month contracts uh, for rights to use their songs. And uh, obviously, if it's going to IPO, it needs to have those contracts locked up for years to come so that investors can have confidence that it's going to be able to continue to provide the service it has been providing. Um, so that's one thing is Spotify trying to get these longer term deals in place. And of course, it would like to pay slightly less per song uh, than it has been in order to improve its financials, whereas the labels would like it to pay slightly more, especially for the ad supported side of its business. Uh, Amazon's trying to get deals to it already has a subscription music service, but it's trying to get deals for an echo only uh, version uh, for which it would charge a lot less, sort of half the usual amount, roughly five dollars or less per month. And then Pandora, which obviously has a completely different model historically, but acquired the audio assets a while ago, uh, is looking to offer a sort of standard subscription service. So kind of moving the opposite direction from Amazon. Um, and uh, it historically has relied on the kind of uh, uh, the default rates set by Congress for um, for royalties and so on that apply to radio and, so, and that kind of thing, whereas um, others have had to set specific deals to, to use content because Pandora's radio-like, uh, they, they're subject to these standard distributions. And so they're trying to now secure official deals, not just in the US but overseas, so that they can offer a full-on subscription music service as a way to diversify their revenues uh, and business. So a whole set of different deals going on. Uh, Aaron, what was your take on all these stories? You know, I think there's room for customized licensing deals, and I won't be surprised if that's where this goes in the future. I mean, the music industry and and the movie industry, both and television, have have essentially approached this as a one size fits all as their default, right? Like they just sort of say, "Look, this is the way it's going to be. This is why songs tend to cost the same, no matter who's selling them." Uh, you know, this is why streaming. Uh, services tend to cost the same per month no matter who's selling them same with rentals you know of tv shows or movies or prices for you know buying digital downloads i I think there's room for more customized licensing in the future and but there has to be good reason for it and device dependent subscriptions are one of the ways that would make sense to me you know I, i sometimes a lot of the stuff i see about amazon i'm sort of like that's crazy good luck with that this is one where i'm like oh i could actually see that happening you know, it seems strange that somebody would want to buy a music subscription just for their Echo. And it obviously wouldn't be something for everybody. But I could picture some people, you know, being happy with the way an Echo works and paying, you know, the five bucks a month. I think it's actually smart on Amazon's part to acknowledge the fact that they're not going to get people to sign up for a, a, a similarly priced subscription service like like Apple Music, um, you know, or Spotify just for the one Echo device. And so it's smart for them to try to come up with something cheaper. I don't know, I, you know, I, we'll see where that goes. But I think I think the idea that the music industry might start doing more tailored customized deals based on special circumstances like a unique device like the Echo, I could see that coming together. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see whether it's able to get that deal ultimately from the music labels. I mean, in general, the music labels are trying to push the industry towards sort of $10 a month type streaming services and, and away from other stuff. And so it's a question of whether they see this as part of that picture and therefore a good thing or whether they see this as something less than $10 a month and therefore a bad thing. You know, it's quite possible right. that somebody could end up using that service just every bit as much as they might use it, an equivalent service that's available on phones if, if they're the kind of person that gravitates towards it. And so the justification for charging less is going to be tough on Amazon's part. And so unless it has some really good data that suggests, you know, people are going to listen to it roughly half as much um it's, it's fairly unlikely the labels will go for it um, but the echo has been an unexpected device from the beginning it has, I, I think it's, it's i think it's had more penetration success than a lot of people expected so uh, you know who knows what they have to tell the labels as far as the way people are using it yeah no absolutely and uh, yeah the other deals are interesting i mean spotify wrote a piece a few months back off the back of its latest financials that always kind of leak via the 
I guess it's the Swedish financial regulator every year. And so I did a piece on that. And they're, they're unprofitable, you know, even though their revenues have grown like gangbusters, they're unprofitable. And it's largely because they spend an enormous amount of money on rights to songs. Um, and uh, that's their key challenge. And if, if the labels only want that contribution to go up, then it's going to be very hard for Spotify to turn a profit anytime soon. So that, that's a real tension there. And it's, it's easily, I think, Spotify's biggest challenge going forward. Um, the Pandora stuff's interesting too. We won't go into depth there, but you know that's a business that's really kind of plateaued over recent years, and they also haven't been very profitable because of the huge amounts they have to pay out. And so, you know, this diversification is an interesting step for them. But uh, again, you know, going into a market where Spotify is a market leader, Apple Music's now a very strong contender. That's going to be tough for them too. Um, third news roundup topic was this shutdown of Vesper, and if you're not familiar with this, it's a note-taking app for iOS. Uh, developed by John Gruber and a couple of others um, under the, uh, I guess they call their company Q Branch, uh, sort of a James Bond reference, I believe, um, and uh, launched a few years back and has been moderately popular, but apparently has been losing money recently because of the cost of maintaining the sync servers and uh, licensing fonts and various other things. And so they've decided to shut the app down. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a bit of a surprise because, you know, it came from uh, several big names, not just one, but um, others who were involved in it were also sort of fairly big names within the Apple community. Uh, but interesting, apart from anything else, for the, for the fact that the people behind it have written up kind of why it, it's failed and how they feel about that. And one of the things that John Gruber wrote about this was um, that, you know, he wishes they'd taken a different approach. Uh, tackled the Mac version first and then released an iOS version and probably released it for free within app purchases for things like syncing and so on. So he wishes they'd taken a different approach and thinks they might have been more successful. Do you buy that? Uh, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I have our, the, the one thing that made, I think, Vesper unique was the marketing muscle behind it because of Daring Fireball. And right. it's very high profile within the Apple community. Um, uh the the idea of it being a Mac app first, if it had been a sort of a no-name company like some you know random independent developer, I would have called them crazy. But I could have pictured, I, I, I don't know, I have a hard time picturing the Mac app without the iOS app being successful at all. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Because most yeah. people are note-taking on their mobile devices. Right. So I'm not as optimistic about it. I think if they had had read both ready to go up front with the sync service up front, I think they could have done really well. I, and he even mentioned in the article, or Gruber mentioned in the article, that you know they that a subscription service might have been the way to go. Um, what's interesting to me about this is that, um, you know, clearly they were shoestringing this, right? In mm -hmm. fact, Gruber said that they wanted to build this off of its own. They wanted to you know fund this off of its own revenue. Right. And because it wasn't doing that, they, didn't, they just wanted to shut it down. They're, they're, I think the idea that there would be external capital in this was something that wasn't an option for them, right. like not, not worth it for them to do, which I get. I mean, you know, Gruber does really well and the others, you know, I, I can see why they would as a group, you know, just want to have this be its own profitable thing right. rather than something that was subsidized because that sort of opens a can of worms when you do that. What's what's interesting about that though is it becomes this little test case for independent developers on 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 mobile, not just iOS, but mobile generally, because a lot of independent developers do shoestring, right? And they mm -hmm. don't have a lot of excess capital or external capital helping them get things off the ground. And what it comes down to is that you had kind of a superstar team coming in to do something where they had a lot of they had a lot of marketing muscle and power behind them that a regular independent developer wouldn't have had. And they still had a hard time making it work financially. Yeah. And so I think it just makes me a little bit sad, right, that that an independent, that an app using an independent model uh, has such a hard time, even with so much going for it. Yeah, and I guess my, my counterpoint to that, and this was kind of my reaction when I read it, was it's a note-taking app. You know, they entered a crowded field. They charged for the app, which few of the other alternatives do. Most of them are free to use and then have, if they charge at all, it's for some kind of syncing or subscription or more storage or something else. Uh, Evernote's a good example of that. You know, OneNote's free now on every platform you can think of. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a crowded field that already exists where everything else is free, where Vespa's main advantages were about the sync engine and some stuff around fonts and design and so on. 
Um, and I just wonder, they, they kind of priced themselves out of the market to some extent and decided to enter a market that was already very crowded. And ultimately, and I think John Groove has been very honest about this, you know, he wanted this app for himself. And so that's why they kind of pursued it. He wanted something like this. But Apple's own Notes app has got better, as he sort of said in his post as well. Um, you know, this is a real uphill battle for anybody really coming into this market at this point, especially charging several dollars for an app. Uh, up front, you know, when you've never used it or anything. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, I, I, I agree with everything you said. And, and to some extent, I kind of think, well, um, you know, this was kind of inevitable, given that the space that they chose and the way that they chose to go about it, that, that this wouldn't have been more successful. So I'm, I'm a bit wary of the idea of reading too much into it. There's certainly something to be said for the idea that even something with this huge profile, um, within the Apple community, and that's important to kind of caveat that. I think, yes, Daring Fireball is an enormous publication within the sphere that we're talking about, but if you think about the billion active iOS devices, how many of their owners actually read Daring Fireball? I don't know. There's a multiplier effect, to be sure, but I wonder if it's easy to overstate that because you know we live within this community where Daring Fireball and John Gruber's names are, are very big. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is sad in that sense, but it's also... I don't know, a reminder that the usual economics and rules of business kind of still apply in the app store. You know, if you go up against a crowded market with charging a lot more for your app without massive sort of feature differentiation, you're going to struggle no matter who you are and no matter how pretty your app is and all the rest of it. Well, and I think that's the problem, though, for an independent developer is that, you know, you can pick any number of categories and there's going to be a bunch of competition, a bunch of it's going to be freemium or just plain free. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's and that's one of the complaints we hear from independent developers in, in the mobile space is that there are a bunch of people who are just throwing out kind of, you know, not fantastic, but but minimally serviceable versions of, or you know, whatever it is that they're making. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every independent developers generally are people that are scratching their own itch, just like Gruber right. and, and QBranch were doing with this app. Um, and and I, I think... I, I, so I, I think it still tells us a lot about the uphill battle that independent developers face. I, you know, and they're becoming, as time goes on, there are fewer and fewer truly original apps or categories of apps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's certainly getting harder and harder when you have, you know, whatever it is now, a million and a half apps in the app store. Finding new niches is going to be pretty tough. All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said up front, I'm going to be the one answering the questions today off the back of this long post that I wrote um, about Tim Cook's first five years as CEO. And that post is very chart-heavy, and we'll link to it from the show notes. But um, it's published on the Beyond Devices blog and on the Beyond Devices Medium publication as well. Um, and it's just 20 charts or so with some explanation and some sort of analysis behind it of, of his time as CEO. Uh, and again, today, the Wednesday, we're recording this, is, is the five-year anniversary of when he took over. Um, so Aaron's going to be asking the questions, and I'm going to be doing my best to answer them here. So I, I think I could question to start with, because a lot of people from the very beginning have seen Tim Cook as, as simply uh, Steve Jobs' torchbearer, right? That that this is that his job is to kind of just oversee the legacy and and carry out whatever vision Steve Jobs had before he passed away. I don't want to start that way. I think a better question is, you know, is how has Tim Cook's um, term as, as, as CEO for the last five years been different? What's been different because of Tim Cook? So let's start with that question. Sure, yeah. So I think, um, you know, he's... I think he's, it's, and this is where it's hard to pull apart, right? What would Steve Jobs have done? And Steve Jobs is very clear about the fact that he didn't want people to think in those terms, right? So he saw how that paralyzed Disney in the years after Walt Disney left. And, uh, you know, he didn't want people at Apple to be paralyzed by the idea of what would Steve have done? He wanted them to kind of, Apple's culture to be strong enough that people kind of knew what to do, what was the right thing to do without sort of thinking about him personally. And so um, it's hard to pick apart what, what, what Tim would have done differently necessarily versus what he would have done the same. But uh, I think one of the biggest and most interesting things that Tim Cook has done differently is reversing the trend when it comes to R&D spend. And so uh, under Steve Jobs, when he came back again, and my, my uh, numbers don't go back quite to that point, but they go back to about 1999. Um, but there was a point in the early 2000s where R&D was about 8% of revenue. So Apple spent 8% of its revenues on research and development spending. Um, and over Steve Jobs' tenure, it went from that 8% all the way down to 2% by the time he handed over to Tim Cook in 2011. What's happened since then 
is that it's gone back up again from 2% to 4% uh, of revenue. And so it's doubled as a percentage of revenue. Um, and that's not, you know, in the context of stagnant or falling revenues or anything like that. That's in the context of revenues that have also doubled. And so you've got basically a quadrupling of dollar R&D spend, but a doubling of, of R&D spend as a percentage of revenue. And so that's a big bet by Tim Cook. And it's not something he's talked about a ton. He's, he hasn't talked about the fact that they're spending more on R&D, but it's happened subtly over the last five years where it's gone from 2% to 4% of revenue. And that's a big bet. And if you look at what's happened to Apple's margins, and there are all kinds of other moving parts in the margin picture during this time. So I don't want to oversimplify and say this is why this has happened. But if you look at where uh, Apple's operating and net margins were five years ago and where they are today, they're about 2% lower, or two percentage points lower. Um, and you know, so th those two things can be quite closely tied together where the R&D spend, that extra 2% of revenue that's going to R&D is the same as the two percentage point drop in operating and net margin. So it's basically a big bet by Tim Cook kind of sacrificing two points of margin uh, and spending it on R&D as a big bet on the future. And as we've talked about a bit on the podcast before, R&D isn't just about big new projects. You know, R&D goes to a mix of one, iterations on existing products and services. So all the work that's going into the next iPhone and so on, you know, from a development perspective, not from the actual building of it, but from the testing ideas and trying to work out how to improve it and so on. That's all R&D. Uh, so two is future products and services. Um, so there's other things that Apple knows it's working towards that are specific products and services it's identified and has some, some sort of roadmap for. And then the third category, and this can be really quite large as well, is just working on a whole bunch of stuff which may or may not ever wait, make its way into any product. Uh, but, you know, two-thirds of that is going into future stuff. Some of it's concrete, some of it's about, okay, we're releasing the new whatever product in a year from now, and so we're working on that. But a lot of it is even more forward-looking. So anything that Apple might be doing with regard to a car, for example, could be in that third bucket. Anything that Apple's doing with regard to augmented reality, for example, probably is in that bucket as well, where doing a lot of testing, trying stuff out, learning a lot, inventing new things, some of which will eventually work its way into an Apple product. And so that massive investment in R&D during Tim Cook's time at the helm is, is, I think, one of the biggest differences. It's subtle, it hasn't been talked about a lot, but I think it's really quite significant that he's making that bigger bet on the future. And the challenge with that is it's, we're not going to know for years whether that bet pays off or not, whether the sacrificing those two points of margin ends up being a good idea or not because you know it was already a very significant R&D spend even before he took over and would have increased if it had just kept pace with revenues by you know double. Uh, but instead it's doubled again. And so that's a really big bet. And uh, you know the R&D spend is Carl Russell, who's a, a VC, was saying on, on Twitter earlier, you know, if you look at those numbers – that's more than all the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley have, have paid out to, to their various investments over many years. Um, you know, and so it's a really significant amount of money that Apple's spending. Um, the other big thing I think that Tim Cook's done differently is uh, the openness and the other cultural changes. So, you know, no, they don't suddenly pre-announce all their products well ahead of time. You know, there's still a lot of secrecy about the products. But the back channel piece that we talked about earlier in relation to AI is a good example of this. We've talked about interviews and, and the guest appearances on, on the Daring Fireball on um, John Gruber's uh, talk show podcast. Um, there's been all kinds of interviews and so on and several with Tim Cook over the last couple of weeks, too. Um, that didn't happen, especially didn't happen with people other than Steve Jobs when he was around and, and only happened under very specific conditions when he was around. Um, so there's that whole openness. There's the social responsibility as it relates to the environment. There's, you know, all the, the causes that, that Apple supported and that Tim Cook's kind of thrown his personal weight behind, especially with regard to civil rights. Um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that where Apple's been a much bigger kind of voice behind uh, things that have nothing to do with its own finances. And, and I think his uh, comment from the shareholder meeting a couple of years ago when somebody was asking about accessibility and other things uh, where Tim Cook says, we don't care about the bloody ROI for this stuff. Um, you know, that sums up perfectly his attitude. And Tim, uh, Tim Cook isn't unique in this. Steve Jobs did some of that stuff. And obviously, accessibility has been a big thing at Apple for years. But Tim Cook's been much more public and much more vocal about doing that stuff because it's the right thing to do, not because it somehow benefits Apple's business. business. So one of the kind of concluding thoughts from the uh, the post that I put up was about the fact that some of his biggest contributions can't be measured on any of those charts that I showed. They're actually subtler than that, and they're, they're, they're non-financial in nature. Yeah, you know, I think a great example of what you're talking about is illustrated in 
the employee giving matching program yeah. that was started by Tim Cook is the sort of thing where Steve Jobs, I mean, I, I think he just would have seen that as a distraction because I'm sure people proposed it. And yet for Tim Cook, it was one of the very first things he did as CEO. And I think it reflects everything you were just talking about as far as culture is concerned. Well, okay. So, um, so I mean, part of what you talked about, especially in the article, is about how much Apple has grown. Um, and, uh, you know, how much of that is actually due to Tim Cook? I, I mean, Apple is a different company today than it was, you know, before Steve Jobs passed away. Is, he, is this really just him writing out Steve Jobs' vision, or are there things that are happening because Tim Cook is the guy? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, the scale's worth talking about a little bit. Um, you know, the revenues have gone from $100 billion a year to over $200 billion a year, and they, they peaked even slightly higher than that last year. Uh, operating income's gone up by about the same amount, so from about $30 billion a year to $60 billion in operating income a year. Um, you know, the iPhone business gone from 70 million shipments a year to over 200 million, so about threefold increase in iPhone sales. You know, there's this massive increase in scale. And obviously, that trajectory is one that Steve Jobs absolutely had set up and that's uh, followed through. But things like releasing uh, the larger iPhones a couple of years ago, um, you know, that was a big deal. And we don't know whether Steve Jobs would have done that, but that obviously boosted sales very significantly. Uh, and there's a number that I had in, in the piece, which I think is 87% of the iPhones that Apple's ever sold have been sold in that five-year period that we're talking about. So only 13% of the iPhones that Apple's ever sold were sold under Steve Jobs. Uh, and the rest have all been sold under Tim Cook. You know, 90% of the iPads, uh, you can't do the same calculation for Macs because they've been sold for much longer and we don't have the numbers going all the way back. But, you know, 110 million Macs or something like that have been sold during the, the Tim Cook era. So massive increase in scale. And the, the business has just become absolutely enormous. And one of the things I didn't talk about in the piece was employee numbers because Apple only updates those once a year. But that's also grown very significantly, hence the new campus and everything else, which, again, something that Steve Jobs kind of kicked off, but a process that Tim Cook's kind of overseen since then. Um, but another thing is the revenue composition. So um, if you look at where Apple's revenue comes from, you go back five years. You know, iPhone was a significant contributor, but at that point, the iPad was already becoming a pretty significant business in its own right. And so there was a fairly diverse set of revenues where the iPhone was less than half, whereas now it's at the sort of two-thirds of revenue level. Uh, obviously a bigger proportion than that of margins because it's the most profitable product from a hardware perspective that Apple offers. The iPad and Mac have both dropped by about half in terms of the percentage of revenue contribution that they make up. The only other thing apart from the iPhone that's grown as a percentage of revenue is services. And it hasn't grown much. It's like 9% to 10%. But of course, again, the whole business has doubled during that time. So if you look at services as a revenue line in dollar terms, it's doubled in size. And, and actually that growth rate's accelerated in the last few quarters as well, I think largely because Apple Music's finally starting to take off and be a meaningful revenue contributor. The other thing is the cash hoard. And I, I talked about the details of this in the piece as well but the Apple's amount of cash that it has on hand, cash and investments, because a lot of that's in securities, but that cash and, and investment hoard has gone up enormously despite the fact that Apple's been spending money on dividends and buybacks, which again is something that Tim Cook introduced. Uh, but despite all of that, uh, the actual amount of cash investments on hand has gone up significantly. I think 60-something percent of that was overseas when he took over. 90-something percent of it is overseas now. So the vast majority of that money has been earned elsewhere in the world. And, and Tim Cook's been waiting to repatriate it until he can get more favorable tax conditions from the U.S. government. But, uh, you know, a lot of that scaling up uh, was a result of work that Tim Cook did earlier, a COO in charge of the supply chain and so on. But obviously it's continued under him with new people running the details of the, the supply chain organization. But, uh, you know, really significant scaling up and, and then the, the change in the composition and the emphasis on services over the last couple of years especially is something that Tim Cook's really driven to. Yeah, it definitely feels like the, this idea of a singular vision from one person is not part of the way Tim Cook is doing things. And I wonder if that feeds into the idea that he's just carrying out Steve Jobs' vision. Right. Um, so, you know, early on in, in Tim Cook's tenure, people were already starting to do assessments about whether or not he's a success or a failure. I, I'm not going to ask you to do that overall unless you want to. But I, but I think with five years in, we have enough of, of, of Tim Cook sort of running Apple according to his vision that I feel like we can look back and say, okay, he succeeded here, he failed here. So do you want to give us a rundown of what you think his biggest achievements and failures have been in the last five years? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, we've already talked about the openness and the culture changes, so I won't revisit those, but I think they'd, they'd be on the achievement side. I think that's been a very positive set of changes in the Apple culture, and so that's worth noting. Um, if we go to the failures, I think some of the obvious things, you know, Apple Maps launched about a year into Tim Cook's tenure, so it's not something he can completely take responsibility for because Steve Jobs almost certainly kicked that project off several years before uh, and it was something that they were building towards but he oversaw the actual launch he was the one that whose name was on the apology letter that, that they famously published he was the one that had to let Scott Forstall and other people go uh, as a sort of sacrificial lamb for what had gone wrong there and Apple's been very public recently um, in some of the interviews that Eddie Q and others have done about the fact that that was a failure um, and it happened on Tim Cook's watch it's one of the first big uh, projects that he uh, kind of oversaw the launch of as CEO, even if, as I said, the work started under Steve Jobs. And that was a failure. And, and it's taken several years for Apple to kind of recover from that and for Maps to get a better reputation among its users. But that, that was a bad start, you might argue. Um, I think another obvious uh, failure was the appointment of John Brown as this, the head of retail. Um, it clearly was a bad fit. It, it, it's funny, it was one of those things where people almost, anybody who knew where he came from kind of said, really, you know, this doesn't seem like a good idea. And it clearly wasn't a good idea and it didn't work well. I think on the positive side, Tim Cook clearly recognized that pretty quickly and moved on and then subsequently appointed Angela Ahrens, who seems to have been much better and has made very positive changes over the last uh, year or so. But uh, but that has to be another failure. So first one was one of execution. Uh, and again, executing on something that started under somebody else. Retail, that was entirely his decision and it was a poor one, but he's rectified it since. I think two other smaller ones, you know, Apple Watch and Apple Music have both obviously launched in the past year and a half or so. Uh, and both of those felt like they weren't right from the get-go. And that's not to say every other Apple product has been right from the get-go. You know, it's often taken a couple of versions to at least check all the boxes that people had. But in the past, it felt like the main criticism of a version one product from Apple was often it doesn't do enough and it's missing this feature and that feature. Uh, but everything it did do, it did very well. And I think the mistake that was made with Apple Watch and with Apple Music was cramming so much in there that it was overwhelming and uh, some of it didn't work very well. Um, and again, to his credit, those things have been fixed very quickly. So Watch OS 3, which is, you know, we've talked about before, is being released remarkably quickly for a third version of Apple uh, OS software, uh, fixes a lot of the problems with the way apps work, for example. And so they do seem to be iterating quickly and fixing stuff. Apple Music gets a big overhaul in iOS 10 uh, that helps to address some of this stuff. I'm, I'm not as convinced as other people that it really solves some of those problems, but other people seem to be happier with it. So again, it's positive signs that, that things have been addressed. But I'd say, yeah, Apple Maps, the retail appointment, uh, the launch of Apple Watch and Apple Music, those have probably been some of the, the less impressive things that have happened on the Tim Cook era. Um, I think on the positive side, aside from the culture stuff I already made, mentioned, China has to be one of the big success stories. And, and that was another thing I picked up on in the post was just how much China's grown for Apple uh, during those five years. It's become enormous um, for Apple. It's easily uh, one of the top two markets, often the biggest market, uh, depending on how you look at things for Apple along with the US. Uh, and that just wasn't the case five years ago. And some of that's timing about China Mobile finally coming on board as a partner. But again, Tim Cook had a hand in that. It's about the timing of you know faster networks in China driving demand for smartphones and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know he's really driven that. He's uh, put 30-something retail stores in China, whereas they had single digits when he started. You know, that massive investment in China uh, is, is an achievement, I think, from, from his time in charge. I think another one, and again, this is a subtler one, is the privacy thing. Um, and, you know, this obviously was something Steve Jobs cared about too, but it's really been emphasized over the last five years. It was Tim Cook that had his name on the privacy letter. It was a post-Jobs thing uh, a few years back. It's Tim Cook that spearheaded the stuff with the FBI over the last few months. Tim Cook that's emphasized the privacy stuff again and again and again. And, uh, you know, that's become something that people are now very aware of when it comes to Apple. It's, it's changed the conversation about some of this stuff. You know, there was a conversation about privacy and so on as it related to some of the ad-supported business models of the big online companies. Um, 
but it happened mostly among a fairly sort of narrow community of people that were really into that kind of thing. Whereas I think Tim Cook's taken into the mainstream and the FBI thing, for better or worse, uh, put Apple in the news in a very big way and really highlighted that privacy stance as well. And so, you know, I think his stance on that and the way that it's been publicized during his time in charge has been a big deal. Um, and so, again, it's subtler. It's harder to point to specific numbers on a chart in relation to that. But I think it's an important thing. And I think as Apple pushes deeper into healthcare. Uh, and into the home uh, over the next few years, I think people are really going to come to value that privacy stuff and it's going to end up being a big advantage for Apple as it tries to do some of these new things. And it's going to be something that people get hung up on when it comes to some other companies. So, I mean, what what should we be paying attention to in the next five years with Tim Cook? I mean, this, uh, this question also assumes he'll be around for five years, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, feels like a safe assumption at this point. Right. But you know what? What should we be thinking about as we're looking forward into the next five years, as far as Tim Cook's leadership of Apple is concerned? Yeah, it was interesting. One of the first comments on the piece that I wrote about this said, um, you know, because I concluded by saying fairly positive things about Tim Cook's tenure, and I did note some of the things we just talked about as well. Um, but he kind of said, well, you know, Tim Cook's an operations guy and he's taken over from this visionary guy and look, Apple's revenues are declining. This is what you get when you have an operations guy. Um, and I pushed back on that. And, and, and the way I pushed back on it was to say, you know, Tim Cook, that assumes that you think this revenue decline that's happening now is somehow going to carry on. And my view on this has been actually, no, we're in a lull right now. And, um, you know, once we get past the anniversary of the iPhone 6, that helps to solve some of the iPhone problems. Doesn't mean we're going to go back to double-digit growth by any stretch. Probably it's going to be low single digits, but gets the iPhone back to growth. We've already seen iPad revenue growing this past quarter. And the Macs are well overdue for a refresh, so when they get it, they'll probably unleash quite a bit of pent-up demand, uh, especially if we get the big upgrades that you'd expect if it's holding back for this long. Uh, the watch is in a temporary lull right now as its launch date gets moved from the spring to the fall. There's all kinds of things that are temporary causes of, of revenue decline at Apple right now, most of which should be resolved in the next couple of quarters. So my assumption is, and this is one of those things to look out for, that Apple will get back to growth again. If it doesn't, if it goes into a longer term decline, then people will blame Tim Cook for that. Um, and again, no way of knowing how things would have panned out with Steve Jobs in charge. But, you know, Apple has been this very high growth company for most of the last 13, 14 years. And it isn't presently. And so to the extent that that seems to be changing on a more permanent basis, then that's definitely something to look out for. Um, I think the other one is where does that R&D spend go? You know, we've got a new Apple TV, we've got the Apple Watch, you know, that's not a lot, it's certainly not game changing for Apple's business. What are we going to see in the next few years that justifies that massive spending in R&D that we talked about earlier? Is it a car? Is it something in AR and VR? Is it something we haven't even imagined yet? Is it a huge investment in home devices? You know, who knows what that might be, but that money's got to go somewhere uh, and it can't all go into the existing product line. It has to go into some new products too. And so where does that go? How does that show up and does it justify that massive investment? So I'd say that's another thing to look at. And, you know, the Apple Watch, uh, again, was released under Tim Cook, but it was largely, you know, work that started under Steve Jobs, um, but, you know, several years of execution under Tim Cook alone. Um, But what are those other new product categories? Are they as compelling? And is the first version back to being perhaps slightly limited, but does it very, very well, which we've seen in the past? Or do we see more of this slightly overwhelming first version that doesn't quite do its job very well and needs fixing later. You know, looking out for more of that, I think would be a good idea too. That's great. Thanks for that. That was really thoughtful and insightful. All right, great. And again, we'll, we'll uh, link to the post uh, on, in the show notes at, at the website. And in case you're not familiar, the website is at podcast.beyonddevices. So B-E-Y-O-N-D-D-E-V-I-C dot E-S. So slightly unusual uh, domain name. Um, but if you look up Beyond Devices podcast on iTunes, you'll find it there and, and you can link to it from there too. All right, our third segment we're going to talk about, as I mentioned up front, the Intel Developer Forum announcements. And uh, there was a whole slew of announcements that were made there. It's Intel's big event, it's their big opportunity to show off what's new and, and big and different. And so there was a whole bunch of different announcements, but we're going to try and structure the conversation a little bit. And I think Aaron's probably going to lead us through that because he had a, a good way of thinking about it. So Aaron, I'm going to kick it over to you to talk about um, some of those threads that you kind of pulled out of this. Sure. I, I think the overarching theme that I got from IDF last week is that Intel is now pivoting to 
a, a more diverse business based on specialized silicon. I, I mean, it's been doing, you know, for, for decades, it, it's had its primary, you know, like computing processor that goes into laptops and desktops. And, and obviously it's, it's had other specialized silicon over the years, but it hasn't, but it's always had its sort of core bread and butter that, that was its primary revenue source. It is really clear now that Intel is, is pivoting away from that in earnest. Um, although the thing about specialized silicon as a strategy that's interesting to me is that Intel is not doing this as a consumer products uh, uh company it, it, it's doing this as a supplier to consumer products companies and, and so what what Intel is trying to it's trying to walk a fine line between two things one is you know it can't anymore just do this big broad generalized silicon it has to specialize more because because you know processors are getting embedded in just about everything you can imagine but on the other side is you know it can't be so specialized that uh, that people can't actually put it to use. So it's trying to create categories of specialized silicon that still have an off-the-shelf appeal for all of these product manufacturers. And so I think some great examples of that, the Joule uh, uh, chip that they're excited about, uh, or I guess it's more of a system, not just a chip, which is about essentially giving vision to uh, to to all kinds of uh, devices they, you know, Made a big deal out of this toothbrush that that uh, that can see, and uh, I, I think the idea. So that's a great example of where you know if you have a device where you want to add vision to the device, then then Jewel is the thing that you go with. Um, then another example of that is the uh, Quark, which is essentially a tiny Internet of Things chip platform uh, that's meant to you know be uh, very flexible for all kinds of Internet of Things devices. Um, that's another example of something that's that's pretty that's pretty specialized, but also meant to be off the shelf. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. The other thing I noticed is that there's a lot more movement by by Intel to be doing sensors. Um, you know, there were a couple of interesting announcements that got a little bit buried in all the other news. Because the the thing that was the headliner was the was the um, VR system that they came right. out with. Project Alloy. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Project Alloy, which. Um, you know, a standalone VR is still a really hard thing to do well because of the computing power required, and and uh, you know, Project Alloy is 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 Intel's really serious entry into standalone VR. Um, they they merged it, but where it where they're trying to distinguish themselves is through sensors. So, so this this. Um, this VR platform project Alloy, part of its competitive advantage is the integration of this real sense motion tracking technology. And the idea is it creates what they're calling merged reality. So that way, when you move your hand to do something, it's not just because a lot of VR sets are just about, you know, turning your head so you can look around. Whereas uh, Project Alloy is about seeing the world around you and integrating that with the virtual reality experience that you're having. So when you reach out with your hand to grab something, the headset knows that you've done that. You don't have to carry a special controller in your hand, which right. kind of feels like it needs to be the future of VR if it's to mm -hmm. if it's to get where it needs to go. So yeah, that's an example of sensors. That disembodied feeling that comes with a lot of VR experiences, where you're like, where did right. my body go when you look down and can't <laughs> see your hands or even your legs or your torso? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, but but there were some other interesting smaller announcements when it came to sensors that you know, have the potential to be pretty decent businesses. One of them was this idea of building smarter homes from the ground up, you know, that, that's uh, that's from a CNN Money article pointing out that Intel would love to have these little chips and sensors being put into houses as they're being built. Um, and, you know, these sensors would give feedback on structural integrity and, and uh, fires and all sorts of other things uh, that you know, are not the sort of things that most consumers would even know were there, but uh, which you could see becoming standard. And also another space where sensors are important for Intel is, is you know, they want to be a part of the standard for, uh, for autonomous vehicles. And that's going to involve a lot of sensor technology and a lot of uh, networking technology, computer cars talking to each other as they're on the road. And so sensors seem to be another big deal for Intel right now, which I think is a smart way for them to go. There's still a lot, there's still, a, you know, a ton of room and upside for the companies that can get really good at sensors. Um, I, I think the last thing that was a big, big deal is that Intel is now licensed to produce ARM chips. Right. And I'm really fascinated to see where that goes. 
you know, Intel can be, I, I mean, if you look at what they've done with like flash memory, for example, and their partnership with Micron, they can be really competitive in these areas that seem like they're just all about high volume, low cost, which is where a lot of the ARM stuff is happening right now. And uh, Intel can legitimately compete in that space. And it wouldn't surprise me if three to five years from now, there's a headline about Intel picking up, you know, a series production from Apple for the next iOS device. Um, in part because Intel has been, you know, at the bleeding edge of fabrication technology when it comes to silicon. And they're going to bring a lot to bear on on actually producing these ARM chips. And so I think that's one that could become a really big deal. In fact, the, the reality of it is, is this is something Intel should have done five years ago. Um, granted, they didn't, you know, very few people saw the explosion of the iPhone and, and of ARM as, a, as this sort of standard platform for mobile. Um, and, and Intel obviously missed that boat, but I think it's great that they're getting into the game now, and uh, hey, because ARM's not going away, and right. there's it makes little sense for Intel to let other people, you know, benefit from that. Yeah, for sure. No, interesting. Good, good stuff. It's uh, a great summary of it. I think the things that, well, one of the things that really stood out to me was just how little of the attention, and if you go through their website even for IDF and look at their press releases, how little attention was paid to. The kind of core PC stuff, um, you know, that they're known for, um, even the data center stuff. I mean, there was some some announcements around that, but it, it wasn't the focus by any means. And yet, you know, eighty plus percent of their revenue comes from, you know, what they call client computing now. But the vast majority of that, in turn, is PC uh, and the data center. Um, you know, those are by far their two biggest businesses. And IoT is this relatively new business for them. It's about four percent of their revenue, and then they have two or three other businesses that are each about three to four percent as well, including the Altera business that they acquired a little while ago. Um, and so, yeah, IoT is a tiny fraction of their revenue today, but it's where almost all the focus was in the various keynotes. Um, I guess Project Alloy would probably come under client computing because it's it's ultimately an end user device in that sense. But uh, you know, most of the rest of the attention was. On, uh, on other stuff, new stuff, some of which, um, you know, could go into PCs and so on, but most of which was either robotics-focused or drone-focused or maker-focused or, um, you know, around a lot of other newer opportunities that are not at all about their traditional business. And so that's where they want everybody to focus. And yet, again, their business today is dominated still by PCs and data centers. Uh, and really, you know, the IoT business for them has grown quite strongly in the past, but, um, you know, in the last year or so their iot and data center businesses have slowed quite a bit they're down to single digit growth now year on year and obviously a four percent business doesn't become anything like a 50 percent business at a rate of single digit growth per year um anytime soon and so that's the challenge for them is whether they can dramatically expand that iot business the big challenge as well is that having not played in arm um, you know they don't get the same advantages as some of the other chip vendors do where they get to reuse what they've learned for smartphones uh, primarily working with ARM and other components that are optimized for those form factors and having scaled those up now, expand that effort and, and reuse it into IoT and so on. And so that's the other big challenge for Intel is they don't have that same sort of starting point. They're coming at this from much bigger devices and having to rethink everything for smaller form factors. And what they showed off was certainly impressive in that sense, but it'll be interesting to see how successful they can be in some of these new areas. They're certainly not standing still there. They're certainly not resting on their laurels and focusing on their traditional business. They're very much looking to kind of expand that business into these new areas. And, and I think everything you just said speaks as to why, as to how we'll see this specialized silicon strategy play out. Yeah. Because without a doubt, they're going to be going into markets that just are not going to materialize, right? I mean, they're going to be producing a, a particular kind of sensor or you know, or a particular kind of chip for, say, Internet of Things devices. And, you know, I mean, a lot of these things that seemed like they were inevitable in the past, like like 3D with televisions, you know, that this stuff can die off really quickly and the buzz, you know, peters out. And, and I think that's what's going to end up happening with Intel's strategy is they're going to enter a bunch of these markets with specialized chips. And, you know, who knows how many of them are just going to dry up. And the, I guess the hope, right, is that, one of them or more will break big and and become a huge deal right. and then intel can have the same sort of dominance that it had with pc chips yeah no absolutely that, that will be the hope for sure anything else you want to say about the intel news before we wrap up 
No, yeah, I mean, we, we discussed this a little bit ahead of time, but the, the thing about Intel's developer event versus a lot of the others is this is all the stuff we're going to see. It, it, you know, if it's important, it's going to be important at least a year from now or more. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this is an episode that you and I probably aren't going to revisit <laughs> right. until sometime later next year. We're going to say, oh, remember Intel talked about that. I mean, that's, this is all very much a slow burn kind of uh, set of announcements. Yeah, yeah, very much sort of first step on, on developments that will get to consumers somewhere down the line a year or two from right. now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, let's wrap up the episode with our usual uh, final segment, which is our weekly pick. And if you haven't listened to the show before, this is where we generally take it in turns to recommend something that we've been using. Oftentimes, it's something sort of digital that relates to what we've been talking about. But sometimes we do things that are a little bit more off the wall. I don't know what Aaron's recommending today, but <laughs> judging by the conversation we had beforehand, I suspect this may be one of those. But Aaron, over to you. So one of the classes I've taught recently is a communications class, and I have my students give a presentation, five minutes, no notes or anything, but they have five minutes to share what they wish everybody knew. And about two years ago, I had a student who did a really convincing five minutes on why everybody should own an electric toothbrush. And I sort of filed that in the back of my head, like, oh, I need to get around to buying an electric toothbrush. And I just never did and never did. Well, I had a dentist appointment recently, and the hygienist went out of her way. And I, I mean, my teeth are fine. But she went out of her way to say, you know, electric toothbrushes are getting really cheap. You ought to think about it. And so my recommendation is if you haven't yet gotten an electric toothbrush, which is the majority of people, you really ought to think about it. Um, the health benefits are substantial. I have been using it now for about three weeks, and I've noticed a huge difference. I will mention the brand and model that I use, but I, I, don't, th I don't know how much that makes a difference. Um, the one I got is the Oral-B Vitality. It's like $20 on Amazon, which is pretty cheap, and it's rechargeable. Um, and actually uses inductive charging. So there's not something you plug in, you just set it on a stand, which is nice because these things need to be pretty waterproof. Um, and, and I've noticed a, a, a pretty good difference. And so this is a really kind of off the wall recommendation, but if you haven't started using an electric toothbrush yet, it's something you should take seriously. And, and Oral-B seems to make ones that people really love. The Vitality one I mentioned has, has a, over a thousand customer reviews on Amazon and four and a half stars. So. So that's my recommendation. My pick of the week is is get yourself an electric toothbrush. Okay, great. Well, we'll link to that specific model um, on the in the show notes. We'll, we'll make that an Amazon affiliate link, which we usually do, so that if any of you do click on it and end up buying that or something else, we'll make a little bit of money off the back of it. But uh, again, th this uh, weekly pick isn't sponsorship of any kind. This is just stuff that we genuinely have been using and, and recommend. Uh, and the only sort of revenue as associated with that is is if you go ahead and click on it through Amazon and and uh, end up buying something thank you for being with us we're grateful for the time that you spend with us every week uh, if you're new to the show then go ahead and subscribe in whatever podcast app you use it's easy to do in itunes app overcast and a variety of others uh, we link to uh, itunes overcast soundcloud and other sources from the website at podcast.beyonddevices so go check that out along with the, the show notes where we'll link to these various things that we've talked about today uh, follow us uh, Leave a review on iTunes. That's very helpful. If you use the Overcast app, you can recommend individual episodes there. That helps them to be discovered by other people too. And uh, if you use social media, please uh, think about promoting the podcast there. Share what you think about it. Help other people to find us too. We'd love to grow our audience, reach more people. So thanks again for joining us and we'll be with you again next week.